This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. Hey, g'day, hello, and welcome to the show, Sports Cutting Edge. Thank you very much for your company. We do it all for the Australian Sports Technologies Network, ASTN, powering sport through innovation. Blockbuster show again today. We've got one of Australia's most prolific sports administrators on the show. Not only prolific uh, sports administrator, prolific athlete. Two-time Olympian in rowing, dual international athlete, not only a rower on the world stage, but also a sailor. Sarah Cook is an absolute gun, joins us on the show today, is the COO of Rowing Australia, and someone who's changing the game in terms of women in sport. Incredible work that Sarah's doing on a global scale. Uh, Sarah also is the Oceania representative for World Rowing, is a commentator for World Rowing, works for the Australian government with the newly formed Sports Tribunal. So literally does everything. Um, Sarah Cook, absolute gun on the show. As well as that, we have our APAC correspondent, Tom Dimitru, out and about. This one's from the Australian Sports Innovation Week, where he caught up with John Curzon from Genius Sports. So Sarah Cook, then we'll hear from Tom Dimitro and John Curzon. That's the show today. Thank you very much for your company. We'll do it right after this. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge. For ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Joining us on the show now, two-time Olympic rower, dual international athlete, both a rower and a sailor for Australia. A prolific administrator of sport, COO of Rowing Australia, as well as that, and you know, I just have to read the resume out because it is quite epic, is a member of the Australian government's newly formed National Sports Tribunal, is a council member of World Rowing, representing all of Oceania, lead commentator for World Rowing on Fox Sports, BT Sport UK and YouTube, board member of Baseball Australia. Formerly worked in high performance at Australian Sailing and also a former high school science teacher, Sarah Cook, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on. Shout out to all the science teachers, all the teachers out there. So how long were you a science teacher for? Um, so I only taught for a couple of years. I think when I was coming through my sport, I knew it was really important to set up for a life after sport and that whole concept mm. of a dual career. And so I, you know, worked pretty hard to get my bachelor degree done in science. And my plan was to be um, a physio and to do my master's in physio. Um, but it wasn't possible because of the practical component to really do that while I was training. And so I thought, well, what can I do alongside my my training and keep progressing my academic career and and so did my master's in education and I wasn't sure I wanted to be a teacher I always thought maybe that rowing coaching teaching thing because as as you might know rowing is very big in the in the school system and so I thought teaching and coaching could be um, a good career and I actually enjoyed and got a lot more out of my master's of education than I probably expected to and I think a lot of life skills which have not even not only been important from a teaching perspective, but in everything that I've done. So I really enjoyed the yeah. study. 
Yeah, good on you. Fantastic. Well, can I ask, I mean, now you're the CEO of Rowing Australia, which is just huge. Can I, when did you start rowing as a kid? How old were you? Um, so I started rowing when I was uh, almost 15. So I was picked yeah. up through the talent identification um, program with the ACT Academy of Sport, which you may recall talent ID uh, was a big program through to the Sydney Olympics. So the whole concept was to find athletes so that we could have our best games ever, which of course in Sydney we did. And we're seeing a similar push now with that 10 year runway into Brisbane with TID sort of making a resurgence. So I was literally yeah. plucked out of obscurity uh, because of my physical traits and physiology and told you'd be good in a boat and, and off I went. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. So age of 15, you're plucked out of obscurity, you put in the boat, and then you absolutely dominate. You go to two Olympic Games representing your country on the greatest stage of all in Beijing and London. I mean, and now you're the COO in such a a hugely powerful position in the sport you love. I mean, how does that feel? It's been a really interesting journey. You know, when I think back 20 years ago now, giving away my age in a moment, um, when I was seven years of age, I watched the opening ceremony of the Barcelona Olympics and um, mum said that she explained to me what the Olympic Games were and we watched all of the nations coming out and I saw Australia come out and I said to her, mum, I, I want to go to the Olympics. And I guess as you do to your seven-year-old, she said, oh, okay, sweetheart, I'm sure you will. And I said, no, mum, I really want to go to the Olympics. And she said I was quite emphatic about that. And Interestingly for me, since that age, I actually remember that and it's the only thing that I wanted to do. Um, mm. And so to to achieve that, you know, I guess 15 years later when I went to my first Olympics was, mm. was huge and then to do it again in London 20 years after that moment um, mm. was, was fantastic. And now, you know, to fast forward through, obviously, I, I had my transition into sailing and, and that was great. Um, good fun for a few years as well but to to look at my career and, and how that's progressed and how rapidly that's progressed it's sort of yeah I guess I guess even when you're an athlete right you you never take the time to take stock of how far you've come on the journey it's always like what's the next thing how do I totally. get the best out of myself how do I perform and so there are those moments where you stop and you go yeah I am I am proud of, of what I've achieved and where I am and Importantly, the incredible support that I've had to get there along the way, and I've definitely had had that um, from from many key figures in my life to support and and help to get me to where I am now. Well, you deserve to to bask in that glory because it is extraordinary, and it, it's funny, like you said that as you know, as a kid watching the Barcelona, you know, uh, Steve Waugh, um, when he was in grade six. The teacher said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to captain the Australian cricket team. The teacher said, yeah, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to captain the... And then, you know, of course, went on to be one of our greatest of all time in that role. So that power of self-belief. Um, I actually want to tap into that a little bit with you. So I went to the Women in Sports Summit on the Gold Coast. Ministry of Sport did that. And Andrea Buckeridge, who works with Tennis Australia. So Andrea was actually the second ever female employed by Tennis Australia back like 27 years ago. And Andrew's just a ripper, heads up the women and girls program all across the country for tennis. 
and we were chatting, uh, you know, in front of the, the audience there on the, on this day. And I sort of said, you know, what would you, what advice would you have in terms of that sort of self belief and all this sort of stuff? And what you said then, that example of you had that goal, you had the vision, and you executed. What advice would you have for, for the listeners in terms of there might be listening, whether it's athletes are listening, coaches, administrators, sports fans. Um, what advice would you have when it comes to being able to identify what you want, but then to actually go and chase it and get it? What words of wisdom would you have for the listeners? Yeah, look, I, I guess it's there's definitely some consistencies when I look across, I guess, the different um, times of or my different career journeys, whether it's as an athlete or I guess that transition phase as I was coming out of sport and trying to work out the path I was going to take. And now that the path that I'm on in sort of leadership and management in sport. Um, and I think there's a, if I'm to step back and, and look at what has been common threads across all of those, one is doing what you're passionate about. So for me, obviously as an athlete, that was my sport and representing my country and going to the Olympics, you know, that, that drove me every day. And I think there's a misconception that because I was a row and did an early morning sport that I'm a morning person. I'm not. Every day was a battle. <laughs> it was horrendous. My alarm going off at 4.30 or 5 was never okay. I never got okay with it and I really enjoy <laughs> sleeping now. So, um, you know, it, it is about doing things you don't like sometimes but always having in your mind that outcome and what it is that you're trying to achieve and that bigger picture. That always really helped me. But at the core, I was passionate about what I was doing. And that was really important in my transition from athlete into my professional career was that yeah. I didn't necessarily know what path I wanted to take. Obviously, I was doing some teaching and coaching when I first came out of sport, but I was really enjoying voluntary administrative roles. And we know that sport volunteering is so critical in this country. I think the aggregate value for volunteers in sport is $40 billion annually to the economy. It's absolutely huge. And we know particularly wow. since COVID, there's been a big drop-off in volunteerism. And I think often um, young people don't get, you know, when we think about volunteers, we think, oh, when I'm retired or, or whatever, I, when I have time, I'll do that. But I think it's really important for people to, um, to give back and support and find that sense of belonging and engagement in sport for life. Um, and, and I've gotten a lot of joy from that. So I was never ambitious about my career it was always about taking on roles that um, I enjoyed and giving back and finding the value in doing that and that was really what then fed into a career in sports administration so it started out being club president and then joining my state board and then joining the Rowing Australia Council and the Rowing Australia board and so all of these roles started to build uh, and, and I guess gather some momentum and it I realised, hey, I, I really enjoy this. I like giving back. Um, I'm really passionate about it and I can stay engaged in my sport in a different way. So that's mm -hmm. that's what's led to my career. So it, it's it's funny. I have had someone say to me once, um, oh, you're very ambitious, which I thought was quite funny because I don't see myself that way because I've only ever tried to do the things that I enjoy and then to do the best job that I possibly can when I'm in those roles. And so that's been my driver. So I think passion um, and uh, working hard have definitely been been the keys to success um, for me throughout my my career. 
Well, it's bloody work to treat, I tell you. Wow. I mean, your career, your resume is extraordinary. And, and it's funny you said that a couple of weeks ago, we had Marcus Deutsch, who's the founder of Fusion Sport. And, you know, they're one of the gun sports tech companies in the world out of Brisbane, you know, and they're working now with the US military. Like they've got the biggest clients in the world. And Marcus actually, he, he built the company literally from the ground up just himself and, you know, back in 2003. And he said the exact same thing. It was all about follow your heart, follow the passion, the rest will follow. Um, so it's it's very interesting that your advice is on point with that. Obviously, different career journeys, but the same sort of great success. Um, speaking about women in sport, so at that conference, Naomi McCarthy, uh, who herself, great Olympian for Australia, former captain of the Australian water polo side, uh, won gold at the Sydney 2000 Games. Naomi does a great job with Griffith now and is a great advocate for women in sport. And Naomi was saying that, um, in terms of at CEO level, 30% are women in Australia. and then But with coaching, it's only 10%. And then with um, sports science and research, it's only 6% of research is dedicated to female athletes. It's about 36% male. The rest is sort of not specific. Um, how do you see the journey, Sarah? I mean, you're someone who's such a role model. Uh, for well, for all people and certainly uh, for women in terms of you know great achievement um how do you see the journey of making a, a greater level of equality in australian sport this is such a complex um i guess um issue and it's something that i'm really really passionate about and have been doing a lot of work in in sport more broadly but also at rowing australia and I had a great mm. chat this morning with Michelle Den Heiden, who works at the AIS in this space. And um, we've been uh, preparing for a showcase that she's holding in women's sport um, in November, um, where she's basically taking the case studies out of various sports, bringing us all together and, and hoping to, to learn and, and really problem solve some of these um, issues from a system perspective. So there's a lot of work and investment in this space at the moment, but um, it's it's interesting because one of the things I've seen just recently in the last couple of weeks is that in rowing, in our yeah. high-performance clubs, we've had two women appointed to full-time coaching roles in the performance pathway. And both of those clubs had strong female influence at a leadership level. And yeah. so there is a correlation, I think, between getting diversity and whether that's gender or otherwise, but having diversity in management and in leadership and how that impacts recruitment and decision-making at all levels. So I think it's going to be hard to shift the dial on one, say the coaching space, if we don't shift the dial on the other as well. And so we know that 30% of women across sporting organisations, sorry, 30% of CEOs across sporting organisations are now women, and that's only happened very recently that we've gotten to that point. And it's a similar number in high performance directors who are the other key decision makers in sport. It's about 25%. So um, we know that that is trending upwards, but I think until we start to get um, more diversity and equality across all positions in sport um, in terms of management and leadership, it's going to be very hard to change it in the coaching pipeline and, and other areas of sport as well. So it is changing. People are working really hard and doing great work in this space. Um, and I'm driving a couple of projects at Rowing Australia, which are having some some good impact. And you know, we'll just we'll just keep working, but it, it will take time. And and I think we're we're moving in the right direction. 
Well, it's funny you say because that, that's what Naomi was saying as well, that you might have 50-50 split in terms of participation, hypothetically. But if the people making those key decisions, like what you're saying, if it's still skewed, you know, uh, towards men, then obviously, you know, the you know the, the flow-on effect is such. So um, tell us about what you're doing at Rowing Australia in this space, Sarah. Yeah, so in my role as um, Chief Operating Officer, I have a few different functions, but I guess there's a bit of a project sort of element to my role, which I really like. I like having that sort of diversity in, in what I'm doing. Um, but when I came into the role, the board had a really clear mandate that we needed to shift the dial on the women in coaching um, yeah. piece. So um, I'm, I've just finished a project which we got a Women Leaders in Sport grant from Sport Australia last year for, which was using... Um, the lived experience of our women in the high-performance coaching system or ones that had recently left the system to really understand what the barriers have been within the coaching pipeline to then, I guess, formulate recommendations that could then be implemented into policy or system change for the future. And the action plan that's come out of that will help to um, be an important piece of our 2032 coaching strategy um, and, I guess, you know, having that carrot of the 2032 Olympics and, and the green and gold decade or whatever you want to call it, there's yeah. such an opportunity to really have a future focus in sport. I think we've quite often run in four-year Olympic cycles that because that's typically the, the funding cycle. But having this um, carrot of, of 10 years and, and what the Brisbane um, Olympics will, will mean for sport means that we can have more of a long-term future focus in our planning. So, I've just, one of the projects I've just um, led and delivered is our 10-year whole of sports strategic plan for rowing. So it's the first time that we've had a whole of sport plan, not just a Rowing Australia plan, which is really exciting to have that um, collaboration and engagement across all of the states and, and the clubs and schools and, and Rowing Australia. So really a top-down approach to how we're going to take the sport forward over the, the next 10 years. And that gender equality piece is obviously a really important part um, of that plan strategically. So this project that I've just um, uh, am really sort of winding up phase one and now I've applied for a Willis grant for um, for the next piece of the project, which is to use one of those key recommendations, which is looking at the, the cultures and environments within our rowing clubs. So there's about 350 rowing clubs nationally. You know, how do we start to change those environments to make them more supportive of, of women and, and a diverse um, I guess, a more diverse range of, of people and, and participants, whether they're people that want to row or coach or um, administrators. So um, really looking now to change and impact that environment um, in a positive way. Yeah, and I've got no doubt you will. Um, and what what else is in that sort of uh, that 10-year uh, window? Like, as you say, you know, the green and gold decade. Like, for for rowing, um, what are some of your key well, – I don't know how much you can share with us, but ha what are some of your key goals between now and Brisbane 2032 for the sport uh, across the board? Yeah, so I've got a bit of an interesting lens, I guess, with which to look at what's happening in our region more broadly. So I sit on the World Rowing Council, um, our mm. international federation, as the representative for Oceania. So I stepped into that position at the beginning of the year and we're mm. going through a strategic planning process um, for our confederation. Um, and it's quite exciting to look at the next 10 years for our region globally in sport. We were running through all of the events that we have to look forward to in rowing um, for our region over the next decade and obviously with the B2032 Olympics, but then 
um, a number of world championships in Asia and Oceania over the next decade, um, Oceania championships here in Australia and New Zealand, um, the Commonwealth Games now in 2026, and we just had the fantastic news um, that coastal rowing has been included. So rowing will be at the Com Games for the first time in 40 years um, wow. in Victoria with the new, relatively new coastal rowing or beach sprint um, discipline, which is um, a, a new discipline for rowing. So um, we've got a really great opportunity for our sport and for this region over the next decade. Um, and those events will really be, I think, um, key pillars for us and the challenge for us is how do we leverage those opportunities to drive sport development in the region because we know that these events are not just games for Australia but they're games for our region as well because we're really the only country in Oceania that has the capability to host a Commonwealth or Olympic Games so it's a really exciting time to be in sport I think. Yeah, gotcha. Um, tell us about the the role. So from from when you were fifteen, and then you go to your first Olympics, two thousand eight, um, and then obviously the London Games, which is you know, as you say, twenty years after you got that Olympic bug from Barcelona ninety two, and then now working in you know as as CEO, but also throughout your time working in, in the high performance space, keeping an eye on that. How have you seen technology and innovation change and shape the sport, Sarah? It's really interesting because rowing is obviously an equipment-based sport and I spent some time in sailing as well and other equipment-based mm. sport and, and that can absolutely be um, a barrier to entry. But um, we always joked that in rowing that we're sort of lucky that it doesn't have a lot of money because the R&D the element, you know, there's so much opportunity there but I guess we don't have the, the, um, the funding of some of those other really um, heavily invested in equipment-based sports like motor racing and things like that. Yeah. So it sort of has has kept a lid on development to an extent. But I guess even throughout my time to look at how um, rowing boats have changed and I guess how we use um, biomechanics and physiology and the testing um, and the research that happens in that space, it's such an important part of our high-performance program that we have a, a fully functioning sports science team um, who are always down in their little dungeon at Rowing Australia, you know, coming up with all sorts of um, gadgets and, and studies and ideas and, and things like that. So um, it really is a key part, um, both, um, I guess, the physiological side um, and how we can um, leverage um, digital and te um, technology to help um, drive advancements in that space, um, but also then from the equipment space and, and the developments that we can do there. And also that a really interesting space because it's only a pretty new discipline um, is para rowing. So para rowing's only been in the Paralympics since 2008. And to see the advancements in those boats, um, you know, to, to cater for the athletes and their specific impairments has been really, really interesting to watch as well. Yeah, I reckon. Um, and in terms of like uh, fan engagement um, and, and digital engagement, how do you see Rowing Australia over the next ten years, sort of in that in that way? Yeah, so COVID, and I'm sure this has been a theme for many of your guests, has really flipped the game on its head. Um, you know, we yeah. had two years where we were all locked at home basically, and one of the things that happened partway through COVID was that you could not buy a Concept Two rowing machine. 
because yeah. they were on back order by about yeah. eight weeks or so. So it's right. um, certainly one of the most popular rowing machines in the world. It's what most uh, rowers use, but it's more often than not what you'll see in a gym. But there are many, many rowing machines on the market. I think there's more than 200 rowing machines on the market. Um, but yeah. Concept2 is probably one of the more recognisable brands. Um, and what we sort of realised in rowing is that when we speak about rowing, most people think about flat water rowing on the, mm. you know, like you see on the TV at the Olympics every four years, six lanes, flat water, 2,000 metres. Um, that to most people is rowing. But I guess I've sort of been for the last six, seven years trying to really challenge our um, community and our thinking to say we've got this whole other element which is indoor rowing. Any gym you go to has a rowing machine. Many people have them in their homes. Certainly every rowing club has many of them in their shed. There's about 120,000 Concept 2 rowing machines in the country. Most of them are not owned by rowing clubs and schools. Um, and certainly CrossFit has really, I think, propelled the indoor rowing discipline. So if we've only got 25,000 registered flat water rowers competing in this country, but we know there's potentially hundreds of thousands of people who are engaging with the rowing machine. How do we capture and engage with those people, both yeah. so that we can quantify it, but so that we can connect to them? But how do they then start to identify themselves as a rower and feel as though they're part of the rowing community? So this has been a big focus and a challenge for us as we've come out of COVID to say, hey, our sport is a lot broader than um, maybe that really niche element of, of flat water rowing and it's a bit the same with coastal which is sort of a different beast and, and taking off um, in its own right and that's been really interesting but that's a very recent development but I think um, if we can start to um, engage with our indoor rowing community then we've got a huge opportunity as a sport and that has been a recent focus and this is where I think digital and tech is really going to be so critical to enable us to do that. Yeah, and, and Australia did so well, you know, at the Tokyo Games. I know you'd uh, started already as the Chief Operating Officer before the game, so you were there as the COO uh, during just a magical time. Australia getting the gold in the men's and the women's fours and then also bronze in the men's and the women's quad skulls. Just tremendous. One of the other things I learned at the Women in Sport Conference on the Gold Coast was it was a discussion uh, that Nat Cook led. Um, and we were talking about Olympic sports and funding, and they were talking about um, funding uh, for our women uh, hockey players. And the funding currently, the players get two hundred and fifty bucks a week to live off, two hundred and fifty bucks a week, which, is, and they're actually getting a pay cut. So it's, I mean, it's already only two hundred and fifty bucks a week. It's going down, and I think that's one of the things that you know would probably shock a lot of Australians. Because, you know, in the sport-loving public, we watch the Com Games, watch the Olympic Games, keep it on, other uh, competition throughout those cycles. But obviously during the Olympics, the whole nation is rallying behind our green and gold stars. But so many of them are having to make ends meet on little to no money. Um, and, and I suppose that raises the question like, Sarah, do you think that through these new advents of technology, fan engagement and, and all these sort of digital opportunities to tap in, to commercialise, to monetise. Do you think there's a way that, you know, rowing and, and all Olympic sports can embrace this sort of tech 
as a way to get more money for the athletes and for the sport? I think I think that there's a couple of opportunities for us. Um, we absolutely know that the way that people are consuming sport now has completely changed and that, you know, maybe that's partially a COVID thing, but I think it's also a, a technology and a generational thing as well, um, mm. that people now all have a smartphone in their hands and for most people that is how they watch sport. They don't sit in front of a television um, and watch it and they want to see bite-sized chunks and they also want, more diversity in what they're watching um, and so we know that there's an opportunity um, certainly with our sport at a um, domestic level and at an international level and, and as you mentioned earlier I'm an international broadcast commentator for World Rowing um, and that goes out on uh, Fox and KO and we we know that there's opportunities to really grow our offering there and that's something that for us as a sport is a challenge is how do we create content that's engaging and exciting um, for the people that, that want to watch it. And we now have a greater capacity to take it to them. So that's absolutely a work in progress for us. The other one um, is, I guess, how do we, you know, through through the smartphone and through the push towards e-sport and virtual sport. So we're probably not going to wade into the e-sport space, but the virtual sport space, which I know the IOC is doing some work on, is another real opportunity for us. And this is where indoor rowing, I think, will come into its own. And so we've started a digital project here in um, here at Rowing Australia, which is um, about 18 months in the works now, um, and it's a digital application called Ronation. And um, we pitched our idea to start up boot camp last year, got into the program and into the um, 12-week accelerator program. Uh, we've come out of that and the application's in development um, and we think that that's going to be a fantastic opportunity for us yeah. to create an indoor rowing community which leverages, obviously, the IP um, and the expertise that we have as Rowing Australia and to be able to mm. take that to the user. And so whether that's training programs, whether that's online competitions um, or whether it's, um, you know, technical knowledge or um, other uh aspects such as um, nutrition or psychology mm. or tips from our athletes, you know, to be able to bring that to the indoor rowing community, I think is there's such a gap and opportunity um, there for us as the NSO, um, National Sporting Organisation here in Australia. But also yeah. um, we're talking to World Rowing and, and partnering with them um, because this is an issue globally for our sports. So it's really exciting um, what we're doing there. So um, I definitely urge you listeners, if you're into indoor rowing or want to give it a crack, um, check out Row Nation and register on the page. And certainly when we go out to testing, um, you'll get updated and you can give it a go. Totally. Row Nation. Row Nation. And it's interesting what you said there about the psychology aspect, because I think the sports inspiration stuff is so powerful. Like even just hearing your story as a seven-year-old kid watching Barcelona Olympics and, you know, that sort of stuff, I think, you know, people out there would get a lot from hearing your story, you know, and, and what you're doing in your career, which is just prolific. Um Actually, I want to ask you about this one. So the uh, recently you've uh, joined the Australian Government uh, National Sports Tribunal. Can you, can you give us an insight into what that is? Yeah, so the NST is a recently formed agency. Well, it's, I guess it's been going for a bit over two years now, uh, I think. Um, and so the CEO of that is John Boltby, who's a very well-known um, sport administrator here in Australia, former director of the Australian Institute of Sport. 
And he's really built that from the ground up. Um, and it's sort of happened in alignment with Sport Integrity Australia. So um, Sport Integrity Australia manages, of course, all of those um, integrity um, areas such as anti-doping, match fixing, safeguarding, um, so those kinds of aspects um, and sort of, I guess, um, enforcing that um, and, and dealing with that. But then the National Sports Tribunal has been set up as an independent body to help to arbitrate or mediate um, sporting disputes um, that arise. And, and there previously wasn't an independent forum to do that. And we saw a lot of sports dealing with it in-house and then matters going to um, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which can take time and, and cost money, obviously. So the NST is really focused on um, being as cost-effective as possible um, for all of the bodies involved and to deal with matters as quickly as possible um, because it's generally when these things drag on that they really start to fester and become bigger and more serious, um, particularly when they're, um, I guess, those, um, you know, member protection type matters as well. So um, the NST has, um, I think, some almost 200 members. So we um, different. Uh, we have different areas of expertise. So I'm there, I guess, from um, a sport administration and also athlete perspective. And um, I've sat on um, more, most recently an, an anti-doping case to provide, I guess, that athlete lens um, and to be that um, independent voice. So the, the um, panels that, uh, I guess, sit on these cases and, and arbitrate these cases um, we try to have a good mix of, of experience and understanding to really um, ensure that, that independence is there, but also that there's a, a good breadth of understanding on the panels so that the right outcome can be found. So you work for the Australian government, you represent <laughs> Oceania for world rowing, you commentate the races, you're the COO of Rowing Australia. Um, my lord, it's it's a phenomenal, and you're on the Baseball Australia board as well. My, I don't know how you find time. It's just amazing what you do. Um, all right, what what's the dream? Because you're very young too. Like, what's the dream <laughs> job moving forward? Like, on the what's the light on the hill that you're chasing? And I reckon 100. percent I'll make the uh, prediction now, and I just hope I can play the tape and say that I picked it. I reckon you 100 percent could easily be president of the IOC one day. Easy, you could do that. <laughs> Totally. You could totally do And you know what would be so good? If it got to like 2044 and you had to announce like the, the next Olympic city rights holder and it was Barcelona, like all those years after you caught the bug from Barcelona, like that would be perfect symmetry. But yes, president of the IOC is my tip. Uh, would you accept the job? <laughs> oh, look, if, if, if someone asked me if I wanted to be president of the IOC, I think I'd be pretty chuffed. But uh, look, I think... It's hard to know exactly what that role is. And I've sort of always, I was having this conversation with someone recently saying, for me, it's always been about trusting my gut and following my gut. If it feels like the right decision, then I trust in that. And I think there's also a bit of making your own destiny there. You know, you sort of, you make the decision and you go with it and then you make it happen, right? You do, you yeah. do the work and you set it up. So it becomes a self-fulfilling sort of thing. So I, yeah. I definitely strongly trust in my gut. Um, I'm loving what I'm doing at the moment at Rowing Australia and, and being on the executive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm only 18 months into my um, 
first executive role and it's it's been fantastic and it's been a steep learning journey and I've had a great mentor in my CEO, Ian Robson at Rowing Australia, who's been incredibly supportive of me. And and I think that's really important as as well. I know I'm getting off track here, but having no, no, please. having great mentors, you know, John Boltby, who I mentioned before at the National Sports Tribunal, um, Ian Ian Robson, my current CEO, um, you know, Rob Scott, um, our our president at Rowing Australia, um, who's CEO mm-hmm. of West Farmers. Um, one of our other board members, Georgia Beatty, who's um, CEO of Fuller, um, which is one of Australia's biggest organic mushroom farms. Um, you know, so these these incredible leaders in um, not only sport but in the business world as well who've been um, fantastic mentors um, for me and, and on my journey. So that's that's been really important. And I think I definitely want to pursue a path of, senior leadership and management in sport there's no doubt about it sport is is my calling i i loved my time coaching i love my time teaching but feeling like i'm giving back and making a difference and changing the path forward for sport with that real future focus whether it's engaging with digital and tech whether it's um ensuring that we have more diversity equality and inclusion um across um, the various areas of sport uh, are just spaces that i'm really passionate about and i would love to keep engaging with sport if I have something to contribute and can really shift the dial. Well, yeah, you've got that much to contribute and you are shifting the dial. So, yes, I, I 100% this, uh, I, I'm saying the president <laughs> of the IOC, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. A, um, yeah, well, now, actually, before we go, I, we should give a bit of love to Sailing Australia as well. Your other great sport. I mean, to be able to represent your country in not one but two sports, like, you know, I mean, that's that in and of itself. Can you just give us a just a little bit of an encapsulation about that journey, you know, when you're rowing for Australia, but then you go to sailing, you pursue another sport. Um, tell us about that that part of your life, please. It's funny because, I mean, if you to think about sort of, I guess, elite sports um Mm. you know rowing and sailing are probably up there with the elite of the elite which i don't come from that background at all i didn't go you know through a private school and rode there to get into rowing you know i didn't have that journey i was tid and at a non-rowing school um so i certainly didn't come through that pathway and then the same i didn't I'd never sailed in a boat when I moved to sailing. I literally, really? yeah, I'd, I'd never even been in a boat. And so I, I wasn't part of a sailing family, you know, which a lot of the people who do sail have been sailing since they were, you know, could walk. Um, and so that wasn't my journey either. So I sort of found myself in these two sports where I really kind of didn't fit, I guess, the traditional mould. And um, I was at the airport in London leaving the Olympics and I was talking mm-hmm. to a friend who I'd met who was a sailor and next to him was a two-time Olympian for sailing, Elise Ricci, Olympic gold medalist from Beijing. Mm-hmm. And when I stood up, she looked at me. She didn't say anything, but as she told me later, she ran off, called her husband and said, oh, my God, I've met someone and I'm in love. And he goes, with who? And she goes, this, <laughs> this tall red-haired girl, I don't know her name, but I'm going to sail with her. So three weeks later, <laughs> she tracks me down and calls me and says, would you like to change to sailing? And we'd, um, leading up to London without, you know, we could do a whole other episode on this, um, we'd had yeah, a bit of a gender battle on um, with our federation around the gender equality for men's and women's rowing and mm. I'd been heavily involved in that and, and that had taken a lot out of me. So when I finished the London Olympics, I had a sense of 
still wanting to continue and go for another Olympics, but I really felt like I was done with rowing um, for, mm-hmm. for now. And um, so when she said it, I said, yeah, why not? Um, so I went to my last regatta in New Zealand a couple of weeks later and announced to everyone that I was changing sports to sailing. And everyone was like, what? You're insane. Because <laughs> I was sort of at the peak of my rowing career, I guess. And um, oh. I took this chance and Elise and I had this crazy plan where we basically thought, well, I have all of the ingredients. And it was Victor Kovalenko, the, um, he's called the medal maker. He coached Elise to her Olympic gold medal. He's been the medal maker for Australian sailing for, for several Olympics now. Um, and he said to me in his Ukrainian accent, you know, there's, there's three things that are required to be a champion. One, you need to have the mindset. You need to know how to, how to train, how to win. He said, you've got that from rowing. He said, two, you need the physical attributes required for your position in sailing, which is quite important. So um, my position was sailing on the 470, which is a dinghy, um, a performance dinghy, and um, my position was crew. So I needed to be tall and lean and physically strong. So I was that from rowing. Although Elise didn't tell me I had to lose 13 kilos, but that was another story. Um, wow. <laughs> yes. So anyway, that, 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 was, that was interesting. She, she got me in before she told me that bit. But, um, yeah. um, but the third thing that Victor said is you need to know how to sail. He said, of the three things, that's the only one I can give you. So that's how it all began. So we, we gave ourselves some targets of where we needed to be in the first three months. Um, and we thought if we can reach these within three months, it's a viable project for the long term. And we actually achieved that within the first six weeks. Um, and then within the first three months, we won the national championships. And within the first 12 months, we were top 10 in the world and, and at, a, at the medal race at our first world championships. So it was an incredible success. And I was lucky to have, you know, someone like Victor who who knew what it would take and Elise who had been an Olympic champion and so knew what that journey would need to look like to win an Olympic gold medal and but importantly she was patient with me she never put me in a position as you know she was the skipper she never put me in a position where I would fail or be pushed to do something that I wasn't yet at the stage to do and we did something that really hadn't been done before and we took a really I guess logical approach Um, to that and we had a lot of people say it wasn't possible you can't teach someone to sail and you have to be in sailing since you're three but you know we really proved that that it was possible and that I guess talent transfer um, from sport to sport and particularly a sport like sailing which people would would naturally think you know takes takes many years and you know that understanding of of the elements um, to get but we really proved that it was possible and it was all going really well until Elise got pregnant pre-Rio, which ended our campaign. So that's why we didn't make it to the Rio Games, but yeah. it did all start in the right way. And, and I don't regret making that choice to give it a crack because it was very rewarding and a lot of fun. I reckon it sounds like a sensational journey and like to go from never being in a boat before to national <laughs> champion in, in sailing. I feel even more confident now in my IOC presidency prediction, actually. <laughs> I feel more confident that you will do that. Um, so honestly, just wonderful to chat with you. We, we've got to get you back because I reckon there's another couple of shows, definitely, in just your story alone, <laughs> let alone, you know, chatting more about what as as you progress with Rowing Australia on, on that journey over the next, you know, well, 10 years, but certainly over the next 12 months or so. It'd be awesome to have you back on the show, 
But, um, yeah, just wonderful. Congratulations to the whole team at Rowing Australia. Everything you're doing, you make Australia so proud. So it's just wonderful to get an insight into the way it all works behind the scenes. Um, Sarah Cook, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Oh, how inspiring. You know, set the vision, execute, repeat. Again and again. Rowing, sailing, administration. Just brilliant. Sarah Cook, COO of Rowing Australia. All right, coming up now, Tom Demetrio catching up with John Curzon from Genius Sports. We're a UK-based company, uh, but a global business that um, has got offices all over the world in Europe, Europe, US, Asia, as well as Australia. Uh, approximately 500 people that um, work for our business, and we we work with most of the the large sports in the world and provide technology solutions for it. What's been your highlight of the conference so far? Really, after a good two years, 18 months of disruption, it's just good to connect with the sporting tech people of Australia and New Zealand. And, and, and that's why I've come up here and put in the effort to, to, to put the jacket on and, and really to network and catch up with people I haven't seen in, in a couple of years. What are all the major events in Australia coming up in the next 10 years prior to the Olympics? What does that mean for your company? Look, we're, we're involved with a lot of sports and these major events, whether they're a, a league-based or a season-based sport or a one-off, will have some involvement in some shape or form, whether it's fan engagement from a betting perspective or partnering with a media client. But look... Um, um, where there's a business opportunity and, and it works for us, we'll, we'll, we'll connect with them and we're always on the lookout to grow our business. What's your ultimate goal? Is you're obviously global, but are you planning on exiting anytime in the near future or are you happy? Uh, my, my goal personally for me is to work with our Australian New Zealand clients, help them succeed, help them grow their goals as, as well as our own business. Um, but our business is, is always growing and it's a it's, a, it's on the um, it's it's an, on the New York Stock Exchange, so it, it, it can grow and eventually people can 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 buy into the business. So that's that's our global plan. Ah, uh, very nice. John Curzon from Genius Sports there with our APAC correspondent Tom Demetrio. wrapping us up. Thank you very much for your company. We'll catch you next week on Sports Cutting Edge. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at astn.com.au.